we have a crisis in the world, tremendous crisis, and also crisis in our consciousness, in us. I see the urgency of change, radical revolution, mutation in the mind. I see it. It is necessary. There is complete quietness of the mind, and that which is silent has vast space. Only then that which is nameless comes into being. This is Urgency of Change, the Krishnamurti podcast. You cannot invite the immeasurable, it then becomes a plaything. You cannot lay down the path for another to follow, it is not to be put into words. Hello and welcome to episode 144 of Urgency of Change. Season 3 of the Krishnamurti podcast continues with the format of carefully chosen extracts from the philosopher's talks. Each weekly episode focuses on a theme explored by Krishnamurti and the aim is to represent his different approaches to these universal topics. This week's theme is the immeasurable. Upcoming themes are achievement, simplicity and problems. This is a podcast from Krishnamurti Foundation Trust based at Brookwood Park in the UK which is also home to the Krishnamurti Retreat Centre. Situated in the beautiful countryside of the South Downs National Park, the Krishnamurti Centre offers quiet retreats for those wishing to inquire into themselves in light of Krishnamurti's teachings. Please visit krishnamurticentre.org.uk for more information. You can also find daily Krishnamurti quotes and videos on Instagram and Facebook at Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review or rating on your podcast app, which helps our visibility. This week's episode on The Immeasurable has five sections. The first extract is from the second question and answer meeting at Brockwood Park in 1985, titled Can Discipline Lead to the Immeasurable? There are many accounts of people following a particular discipline who come upon the immeasurable. Are they self-deluded or have they come to this somehow despite their efforts? Or is there another explanation? It's nothing to do with disciplines, with effort. May disagree, you're perfectly right to disagree or agree, but let us both understand what we're talking about. Each of us. You may belong to a particular discipline Buddhist, Hindu, Tibetan, Christian, certain abbot, certain guru, all the rest of it. Follow certain discipline. Order. Do everything every day at two o'clock in the morning or early morning. Pray, do this. Discipline. And through that discipline, some people say they have, re- they have understood or realized the immeasurable. Right? The question is here. Who come upon the immeasurable? Are they self deluded? Or do you say, The word discipline, according to the dictionary, means to learn. To learn. The disciple learns. Not from a master, learns. 
that is his learning not <coughs> conforming not imitating not obeying is learning learning itself has its own discipline right i don't know if you understand there is this quality of learning not memorizing and repeating right that is most of us accumulate knowledge and memory to do certain functions certain skills and so on. so learning in there is implied accumulation and according to that accumulation of knowledge acting and that knowledge can be increased more and more or becomes duller and duller more and more uh, accustomed right so most of us are memorizing in order to have a skill to live in this modern society you must have some kind of skill in the factory in the mines in the business or in the at the altar some kind of effort some kind of discipline and they keep on repeating day after day day after day day after day you see them in the churches in temples and mosques repeating the same old stuff and it's not learning they may say yes we are learning but that that's rather meaningless if you repeat 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 so can discipline which is conforming imitating obeying towing the line can that lead to the immeasurable immeasurable means that which is not being measured which cannot be measured right is beyond all measurement all delineation the line it seems for the speaker that's not possible because the brain then is conditioned to a routine to a certain particular form and the very essence of that limitless to compre- not comprehended to see what it is requires immense incalculable freedom for what is freedom not all this freedom there are two kinds of freedom freedom from freedom per se for itself i can be free from fear there can be freedom from fear that freedom is conditioned because it's free from something and is there a freedom which is by itself the thing itself and it's only that freedom which requires compassion love and that freedom is that supreme intelligence which has nothing to do with the intelligence of thought and to come to that one has to be free from all fears and all the rest of it if that interests you are put your energy into it 
that put your life, your house in order, complete order, not neatness, not polishing the furniture, it's part of it, but the house, the inner house, the deep house that has no foundation, no roof, no shelter. You can't invite the immeasurable. Then it then becomes a plaything. You can't tell, lay down the path for <coughs> for another to follow. It is not to be put into words. We measure everything with words. We call it the immeasurable. It certainly is not. It's something entirely different. The second extract is from Krishnamurti's fifth talk in Sanan, 1971, titled Inquiring into the Immeasurable without illusion. Now we want to find out, the mind wants to find out, that it is possible to go beyond time. That is, enter into the immeasurable, which has its own space, and live in that world and function with knowledge. Live in a world which is completely immeasurable free of time and yet function with time, with knowledge, with all the a technological achievement which thought has brought about. You're, you're getting my... Really? You know, this is a very important question to ask. And the religious people not being able to enter into something which is not measurable, have invented a concept of freedom, which is an illusion, because that concept is the result of thought. And therefore still within the field of time and knowledge. Now can I, can this mind inquire into the quality and the nature of, of the immeasurable, knowing very clearly that any form of illusion a projection by thought is still within the field of time and therefore knowledge. Hmm? Therefore mind must be entirely free from any movement which might create illusion. Are you meeting? Because it's very easy to imagine one is in a timeless world and go nuts over it, get neurotic have tremendous illusions, think you have got, oh, God by the right hand. All that is illusion. So, what makes for illusion? You're following my 
what creates illusion. Deception. A neurotic, fragmentary, schizophrenic mind. You've, right? What creates such an illusion? What is the factor of illusion? Are we following each other? May I go on? I know, I know. <laughs> you want me to go on or you just listen? Please, don't do that. It's no fun. Because unless you do this, you know, actually do it, that is, know for yourself very well the limitation, the slavery to knowledge. And knowing that is absolutely essential. Otherwise, you can't do a thing. And also, becoming aware and conscious that one can deceive oneself most extraordinarily. Imagine that you have, you know, have extraordinary visions, all that stupid stuff. So one has to go into this question very, very carefully, first not to deceive oneself under any circumstances, not to have a hypocrite, not to have double standards, the private standard and the public standard. Saying one thing, doing something else. Thinking something and talking about something else. That requires tremendous honesty, which means I must find out what is the factor that creates, brings about in the mind the deception, the hypocrisy, the double talk, the illusion the various neurotic distortions, unless the mind is very clear of any distortion, it cannot possibly inquire into the immeasurable, right? So what do you think brings illusions? Illusions of grandeur, illusions of great sense of that you have achieved reality, that you have gathered in your fist all enlightenment, you know, the things, the neurotic processes one has. What is the cause, without analysis, to see for oneself very clearly where distortion takes place? Distortion is hypocrisy. Distortion is imagination where imagination shouldn't enter at all. It may be all right imagination when you're painting a picture, writing a poem, writing a book, a novel, a detective story. But if you use imagination to 
imagination and say, that exists, then you're caught. Right? So I'm, I must find out the factor of illusion, distortion. Not only find out, but be completely be free of it. Right? Have you put this question to yourself? No double standards, personal life and public life, double talk, believe in one thing and do something else, be a Christian and be, with all the ideals and mythology of Jesus and all that, and at the same time, you know, be violent, cruel, bestial and all the rest of it. Talk about brotherhood and be devoted to nationalism, to division. So all these are the factors. All these are the indications of distortion. And I want to find out if the mind can be completely be free of any distorting factor, right? Now, what, what distorts the mind? May I go into it? What the factor of Distortion is thought. That is, thought cultivates fear. As thought cultivates pleasure. Thought says, I must enter into that field, into that timeless state because it promises freedom and perhaps there is something more to it. It wants to achieve. It wants to gain. Because there is, perhaps you'll have greater experience there. Right? So thought, which is knowledge, where, when it functions rationally, objectively, sanely, is not distorting factor. Right? To go to the moon. If you are neurotic, you can't go to the moon. If you are a neurotic technician in technology, you can't put the thing together. But when you get to the moon, you are still Russian or American, which is neuroticism. And there you plant a flag or do all the stupid childish things, which is still the action of thought. You're following all this? So, the major factor, please listen to factor of distortion is fear and the demand for pleasure through gratification. Right? So I'm, the mind must be completely be free of fear. Can it? Don't say yes or no. You know nothing. Let's investigate. Please see the importance of this. The factor of distortion is fear. The factor of distortion is the demand for pleasure, gratification, enjoyment, the demand. 
not the pleasure itself, but the demand for pleasure. Uh, you're following on which all our moral religious structure is based. Hmm? So, I'm asking myself, can this mind, the human mind, the human mind which is the result of time, which is the, with its brain the whole content of memory, extensive or small, narrow or wide, measurable, can this mind be free of fear completely? Otherwise distortion takes place. Hmm? Now comes the test. We can play with words with ideas, but when it comes down to actual fact, we withdraw. So when you withdraw and not face the fact, you're not, you not concerned with the understanding of illusion. Therefore you prefer to live in an illusion than to go beyond it. Right? So the, don't be a hypocrite. Says, I love this. I love to live in illusion, in deception. Face it. Then you'll come upon fear, and then you can escape from it. You can play all kinds of tricks and get more and more neurotic. But if you like that, remain in it. Don't fight it. You understand? The more you fight it, the more fear is. But if you understand the whole nature of fear, which is dependency, all that, and face it, look at it, then as you observe, you not only are aware of the, of the superficial conscious fears, but also as you observe, you penetrate deeply into, into the root recesses of your mind. Are you doing this? So the fear comes to an end completely. And therefore, the factor of distortion ends. And if you are pursuing or demanding pleasure, that is also a factor of delusion. I don't like this guru, but I like that guru. Right? My guru is greater than your guru. <laughs> I will go to the remote corners of the world and India, Japan, whatever it is, and find truth. Truth is around the corner here, not in there. So there is a freedom which is not measurable. You can never say, I am free. You understand? That's an abomination. All that you can inquire into is the function of thought in knowledge and whether that and there is there any action which is not measurable which is not in the field of the known you are constantly learning 
a mind that is constantly learning has no fear. And therefore, perhaps, such a mind can go, can pers- I won't use this word, such a mind can then inquire into the immeasurable. The third extract is from the third talk in Sanan, 1972, titled Has Thought a Place in Investigating the Immeasurable? So thought has a logical function, efficient, if it is not personal, And the accumulated knowledge as science and all the accumulation of ideas knowledge becomes important, but knowledge which is the known prevents the mind going beyond the present and the past. Thought can only function in the field of the known, though it may call the unknown according to its conditioning, to its uh, knowledge of the known, and project the unknown. Right? And you observe this phenomenon right through the world. The ideal, the future, the what should be, what must happen, according to the background, to the conditioning, to the education, the environment. And thought is responsible also for behaviour. The vulgarity, the crudeness, the brutality, the violence in all relationships, and so on. And so thought is measurable. Now, I do not know if you have not noticed or thought about it, that the West is the explosion of Greece which thought in terms of measure. Right? Are you following all this? To them, mathematics, logic, philosophy, all the things they discovered, which exploded in the, on the way, in the West, is the result of measurement, which is thought. Right? Does this interest you? Because I'm coming back to you presently. Because without understanding the whole machinery of thought, what is its tremendous significance, meaning, where it becomes utterly destructive. Meditation has no meaning. So, unless you really understand this, have a deep insight into the whole machinery of thinking, 
cannot possibly go beyond it. And you notice that in the East, India exploded over the whole of Asia, not the modern Indians, ancient India. Modern Indians are just like you, romantic, vulgar, superstitious, frightened, grabbing money, wanting position, power, prestige, following some guru, you know, all that business that goes on in the rest of the world. Only they are different colour, different climate, different morality, partially. So, the ancient Indians, not that I have read any uh, scriptures, but I have observed a great deal, which is good enough. They said, Measurement is illusion, because when you can measure something, it's very limited. And if you base all your structure, all your morality, all your uh, existence on measurement, which is thought, then you can never be free. Therefore, they said, at least according to what I have observed, that the immeasurable is the real and the measurable is unreal, which they call Maya. Now, but you see, thought as the intellect the capacity to understand, to observe, to be able to logically think together, to design, to construct. Thought shaped the human mind, human behaviour, as it did in India, as it does in Asia. In Asia, they said, to find the measurable, immeasurable, you must control thought. You must shape it through behaviour, through righteous conduct, through control, through various forms of personal sacrifices and so on, so on, so on. It's exactly the same thing as in the West. You are following? In the West also, they said, control. Behave, don't hurt, don't kill. But both the East and the West killed, misbehaved, did everything. So, the question is, as thought is the central issue of our existence, which we cannot possibly deny. We may imagine that we have a soul, that there is a God, that there is heaven, hell, invented all these things by thought, the noble qualities and the ugly existence, all the product of the machinery of thinking. Right? So one asks oneself, what place has thought? If the world, the outer existence, is the mechanistic the result of mechanistic philosophy, mechanistic physics, 
What place has thought in relationship and what place has thought in the investigation of the immeasurable, if there is the immeasurable? You are following all this? I'm, you must find out. And this is where we are going to share together. I want to find out what is thought and therefore thinking, what significance in existence has thought, and if thought is measurable and therefore very, very limited, can thought investigate something which is not of time, of experience, of knowledge. I don't know if you are following all this. You understand my question? And both East and the West have said that to find the immeasurable, call it by different names, it doesn't matter, the unknown, the unnameable, the eternal, the everlasting, you know, they have given dozens and dozens of names to it, which is not important. Can thought investigate it? Then if thought cannot investigate it, then what is the mind that is capable of entering into that dimension which has no word? The fourth extract is from Krishnamurti's fourth talk at Brockwood Park in 1972, titled Finding Out If There Is Something Beyond All Measure. So, can the mind, which is the brain, see its own limitation? Limitation of time, which is the bondage of time, and the limitation of space. And as long as one lives within that limited space and time-binding movement, there must be suffering. There must be psychological despair, hope, and all the anxiety, everything takes place. So when the mind has perceived the truth of this, then what is time? Then is there a different dimension which thought cannot touch, therefore cannot describe? We said thought is measure, and therefore time. We live by measurement. All our structure of thinking is based on measurement, which is comparison and all that which we have gone into last few days. And thought as measurement tries to go beyond itself and discover for itself if there is something immeasurable, which is not measurable. 
And to see the falseness of it is the truth. You understand? Wonderful series. The truth is to see the false. And the false is when thought seeks that which is not measurable, which is not of time, which is not of the space with its content of consciousness. So, you understand, when you have put all these questions and have inquired, when you have learnt as you go along, then your mind and your brain becomes extraordinarily quiet. There is no need for any discipline, any teacher, any guru, any system to make you quiet. There are various kinds of meditations in the world at the present time. The Zen, the Alpha Meditation. Have you heard about the Alpha Meditation? No? Invented by the gadgeteers Americans. <laughs> Which is, they have an instrument, electronic instrument, and they put electrodes on their brain, and they watch in the measurement whether their brain is quiet or not. <laughs> you understood this? And any silly ass can do this <laughs> and train himself to be quiet. You understand games that are all playing. And you go to Asia or Japan or various monasteries and learn there to be attentive, you know, trained like some animal trained to perform. And then there is other forms of meditation. The latest is Kundalini Yoga. Have you heard about all that built? You know what that means? I won't go into it all because, you know, there are certain things you cannot possibly talk about because man is too eager, too greedy to find, to, to experience something which he doesn't know anything about. The whole idea of Kundalini in India is the awakening of energy and, I won't go into all the details of it, that energy completely held. No, that energy without any distortion, acting. And some people in the West now, because it has been brought by some Indians, and are practicing Kudalini Yoga, you know. And there is obviously the fashionable thing now, Yoga. Right? You know all about it, don't you? Yoga means, as it is translated now, joining, yoking two separate things together. I am sure it had a quite a different meaning at the beginning. Yoga meant probably harmony, not bringing two things together, soul and the body and the Atman and you know, all the rest of it. And I once saw at a station in India a beggar 
doing yoga most beautifully. They were throwing coins to him from the railway carriage. And he was doing the most complicated yoga with the most with the greatest of ease. And that yoga has been brought to this Western world to make people healthy, happy, young, find God, you follow? Everything is involved in it now. Originally, from what I have been told, there was a certain weed, certain leaf in the Himalayas, which only very few people chewed, and it kept their brains and their mind tremendously alert. And as the vine or the bush disappeared, (laughs) then they had to invent a system called yoga which kept all the glands perfectly healthy, operating efficiently. And that's how yoga came into being, which is exercises. And also in it is involved a way of life, not just doing some silly little exercises, a way of life in which there is no drugs, you follow, sir, morality, all the rest of it. So, and also now there is the pursuit of the occult. Don't you know all that? More and more, because... It's more exciting. I have seen everything in the world and I want to see something beyond the world. Extrasensory perception and so on and so on. So, a man who is pursuing truth, who is trying to understand life totally, who sees the false as the false and the true, and in the false the truth, to such a mind the occult things are fairly obvious. To such a mind he will not touch it. They are totally unimportant, whether I read your thought or you read my thought, whether I see angels, fairies, some kind of visions which I have not seen before. Because we want something mysterious, and we don't see the immense mystery in living in, in the love of living. You understand? We don't see that. And therefore we spread out in things that don't matter. Now, when you have finished with all this, there is the central problem, which is Is there something which is not describable? Because if you describe, it is not the described. Is there something which is not of time, which which is without borders as space, which has immense space. I do not know if you ever watched birds sitting on a telephone wire. If you have watched it, you will see that each bird has space very carefully. 
Because when you have, when your space is limited, you become vicious. Which is what is happening in the urban, in the cities. Where there is no space, you become violent, you want to break things, you, you know, you want space. Mind cannot, thought cannot give that peace. Only when thought is quiet, there is this space which has no frontier. And it's only the completely silent mind that knows that is aware, not knows, that is aware if there is or if there is not something that is beyond all measurement. And that is the only thing that is sacred. Not the images, the rituals, the saviors, the gurus, their visions, but that thing which mind has come upon without asking. Because in itself it is totally empty, and therefore that which has emptiness, a new thing can take place. The final extract in this episode is from a recording made by Krishnamurti in Ojai, 1984, titled The Brain Tries to Measure the Immeasurable. This is really an extraordinary place. Words cannot measure the expanse, the rolling hills and the vast space, nor the blue sky on the distant desert. It was the whole earth. One hardly dared to talk. There was such compelling silence, not to be disturbed. And that silence cannot be measured by words. If you are a poet, you probably measure with, with words put into a poem. But that which is written is not the actual. The word is not the thing. And here, sitting beside a rock which was becoming warm, man did not exist. The rolling hills, the higher mountains, the great sweeping valleys, deep in, in blue. You, there was no you. There was nothing but that. From ancient times, the ancient Egypts, the Greeks, the ancient Indians, and the Chinese, they all had this concept of measurement. All their marvelous buildings were based on mathematical measurements. When you look at the pyramids and the glory of of the Parthenon and the tall 110th floor of New York. They all had to have this measurement. Measurement is not only by the rule, but measurement exists in very brave, 
the tall and the short, the better, the more. This comparative process has existed for time beyond time. We're always comparing from the the boy in the school, high school, college, university, the passing of examinations. The whole way of living has become a series of calculated measurements. The more beautiful and the ugly, the noble and ignoble, the whole set of values that one has. The arguments that end up in end in conclusion, the power of people, power of nation. Measurement has been necessary to man. And the brain being conditioned to measurement, to comparison, it tries to measure the immeasurable. Measuring with words that which cannot ever be measured. This has been a long process for centuries upon centuries. The greater gods and the lesser gods. Measuring the vast expanse of the universe. And measuring the speed of the athlete. This comparison has brought great many fearsome sorrows. Now, on that rock, a lizard has come to warm itself quite close. You can see its bright eyes, its scaly back, and the long tail. It's so still, motionless, the sun has made that rock quite warm. And the lizard, coming out of its cold night and warming itself, is waiting for some fly, an insect, to come along. It'll measure the distance and snap it up. To live without comparison, to live without any kind of measurement inwardly, never to compare what you are to what you should be. The word meditation is not only to ponder, to think over, to to look, to weigh and all that. But also it has much deeper meaning. As in Sanskrit, the word means to measure, which is to become. And in meditation there must be no measurement. And this meditation must be not a conscious meditation, a deliberate and chosen postures, deliberate chosen postures, but meditation can never be a conscious meditation. But it totally unconscious, never knowing that you are meditating. If you deliberately meditate, it's another form of desire, as any other expressions of desire. The objects may vary. Your meditation may be to reach the highest. But 
The motive is the desire to achieve as the businessman. Meditation is a movement without any motive, without will, and the activity of thought. So there must be, it must be something that's not deliberately set about. Only then that meditation becomes a movement in the infinite, measureless to man, without a goal, without an end and without a beginning. And that has a strange action in daily life. For all life is one. When life it becomes sacred, and that which is sacred can never be killed. To kill another is unholy. It cries to heaven as a bird kept in a cage. One never realizes how sacred life is. Not only your little life, but the lives of millions of others, from the most, from the things of nature, and to extraordinary human beings. And meditation, she's without measurement, then is the very action of that which is most noble, most sacred and holy.